we're really going to help those who can permanently transition out of poverty, then the help needs to be personal. It can't be generic. And I think that's the distinction here is that the state, because it's 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 a collective, you know, um, set of institutions and groups of people that are helping from the top down. They can only really help in a generic way, right? They have individuals, but they can't get to know them in the same way that your church can get to know the people in the community. And think of the church in Baltimore. It knows the problems of Baltimore, whether they're problems of drug addiction or problems of poverty or problems of uh, in the family way that a federal bureaucrat who might be very well on pension just can't get to know them. The voice you just heard was that of Dr. Ann Rathbone Bradley. She is vice president of economic initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Work and Economics. And she is our guest today on Radio Free Acton. This is the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It is my pleasure to be with you once again here on the podcast. And uh, we are going to have a great talk with Dr. Bradley in just a few moments. Uh, Before we do that, I want to uh, let you know she'll be back in town here in Grand Rapids as part of Acton University. And we hope that you will be in town with us as well. Uh, if you don't know what Acton University is, it's our biggest event of the year here at the Acton Institute. Our mission is to integrate, uh, sort of integrate theology and economics, to provide a theological insight into uh, the, the morality of the market economy. We believe in a free society, uh, and we believe in a free and virtuous society. Acton University is the event every year where we bring in a thousand, roughly a thousand folks from around the world. And we spend four days exploring the intellectual foundations of the free society. Uh, We talk philosophy, theology, business, uh, development, and uh, we do it with sound economics, with market-based economics, because we believe that the free human person is is the most important thing that uh, we can have, and that those free human people have the capacity to build a flourishing human society. Acton University this year will be taking place uh, from June 20th through the 23rd, uh, it's a Wednesday afternoon and evening all the way through Friday evening, and it's always a great conference. People from around the world join us. You'll have an opportunity to to talk with and meet people from uh, every continent, barring Antarctica, I suppose, but you will have opportunity to interact with people from around the world, different cultures, different economic systems, and it's just a great way to broaden your understanding of economics and to learn how to defend the free society, and how to build and maintain a free society. Uh, You can join us uh, June 20th through 23rd. Check it out online. University.acton.org is the website. Uh, You can go there for all the information on costs, financial aid, uh, and to apply. The schedule is already posted. uh, For the most part, there are a few blank spots on there, but uh, there's a lot of class information already posted at university.acton.org. So check it out. Acton University, hope to see you here in uh, downtown Grand Rapids this June. In the meantime, uh, it is time to talk with uh, our guest today, Dr. Ann Rathbone Bradley of the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, uh, right here on Radio Free Acton. Well, I am pleased to be joined today on Radio Free Acton by Dr. Ann Rathbone Bradley. She is the Vice President of Economic Initiatives at uh, the Institute for Work 
Faith and Economics. She's responsible for developing and uh, commissioning research toward a systemic biblical theology of economic freedom. That sounds like something that, uh, that we can talk about here at the Acton Institute. Dr. Bradley, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, we, we had you here last week. As, as we record this, you were here uh, as part of our Acton Lecture Series, G- gave a great lecture on why Christians must support economic freedom. And uh, that's uh, one of the, uh, first of all, the video is posted on, on the Acton Power blog and in our multimedia pages. So do check that out. It's, it's a very good lecture. But uh, the, the question that arises when Christians think about economics, I think one of the main questions in the modern world is what responsibility do, do Christians have to the poor? And in, in particular, uh, the question would be what, what responsibility does Scripture lay, out, lay upon Christians individually versus, uh, say, uh, does, does Scripture lay a responsibility on the state or, or some sort of a collective group of people for poverty? What's, what is the biblical balance of those two things? Well, Mark, I really love this question because I think that there's a lot of misunderstandings around this. And uh, part of it comes from, I think, Christians think that policy questions don't always have their roots in Scripture, but they do. Uh, And I think the other issue is that we don't always understand the economic way of thinking. And so when we combine those two together, Scripture and the economic way of thinking, we have a very powerful um, way of both understanding the problems in the world and providing solutions uh, for the world. So let me just start with the scriptural basis that you asked about. And it's very clear to me that uh, Scripture calls us to care for the poor as individuals. Um, It's just written through Scripture. You see it time and time and time again. And uh, even in Matthew, it says the poor will always be with us. And, you know, it's funny because when you look at the data today, we're a lot richer across the whole globe than we were even 50 years ago. Um, So I think the way that we're going to help people who live at the bottom is going to always be changing. But we always have a responsibility to help those at the bottom. Uh, And, you know, because the reason is they're – People live at the bottom of the income distribution for many different reasons. It's quite different to be poor in the United States, for example, than it is to be poor in uh, Ghana today. And there's a reason for that. And and I would assert that part of that is the good institutions um, that are provided by economic freedom. And those institutions are grounded in scripture, things like property rights and the rule of law, the fact that, you know, we need government to help us. So I think Part of the answer lies in individuals. We are called to give up some of the extra we have to help the poor. But the government has a role, too, by protecting our property rights and providing us with courts and a rule of law and a system um, that protects economic freedom. So it's both is the answer to your question. But I think in terms of giving up resources and giving up our time and giving up our talents to help people – who need to transition out of poverty, that really lies on individuals and it lies on the church. And I think there's a lot more we can do uh, than, than we already are doing in that regard. Follow-up question to that would be, what difference is there uh, between, say, a large government program's approach to poverty versus that more individualized approach? What are the things that the government, I would assume that there are things that the government simply can't address when we talk about root causes of poverty, because poverty is in a lot of cases, there are there are spiritual roots to poverty. There are problems with that people struggle with 
that governments can't address. Is that a fair statement? That's completely fair. And I think that really hits the nail on the head. I mean, the government has a lot of resources at its disposal. It's really not a question of resources. We've, in fact, dedicated trillions of dollars since Johnson declared the war on poverty. And we really haven't moved the needle so, that much in terms of the percentage of people in the United States living under the poverty line. So it's really not about just moving around resources. That's actually the easy part. As you mentioned, the hard part is what are the spiritual roots of poverty? And the way I like to think about it is this. You can imagine a single mother living in a city like Baltimore right now, uh, Baltimore, Maryland, which is has a lot of um, different neighborhoods that are um, associated with gang violence and poverty and uh, single parents. And this woman is struggling and trying to do the best she can for her children, but she's poor. And that's very different, perhaps, than a person um, who is poor because of a drug addiction and maybe living on the streets. And so if we're really going to help those who can permanently transition out of poverty, then the help needs to be personal. It can't be generic. And I think that's the distinction here is that the state, because it's 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 a collective, you know, um, set of institutions and groups of people that are helping from the top down. They can only really help in a generic way, right? They have individuals, but they can't get to know them in the same way that your church can get to know the people in the community. And think of the church in Baltimore. It knows the problems of Baltimore, whether they're problems of drug addiction or problems of poverty or problems of uh, in the family way that a federal bureaucrat who might be very well-intentioned just can't get to know them. So I think it's this idea of subsidiarity, that when we're closer to people, we can know what they need. And as Scripture tells us, we're urged and compelled to help them. And so it's not just about one-on-one help. You know, I can help someone by giving them money. It's also community help. Uh, So it's the church coming together uh, it's uh, charitable organizations coming together, and I think this provides very powerful mechanisms in communities to address the real roots of poverty, as you mentioned. And they're not just financial. They are spiritual. So the church has a real role to play here. Let's look at the, the flip side of this equation, because we, we, we talk often about uh, how Christians are supposed to deal with the problems of poverty. One of the questions I think that's rarely asked, and, and I think people will often have— uh, perhaps a wrong idea about this is how does scripture address wealth? Uh, and I, I'm, I go back to your lecture here at Acton a, a week ago with a gentleman asked a question and, and he, he raised the point that if you look at scripture and you look at the life of Christ, you look at the life of the apostles, you look at the early Christians, um, wealth was not there. That Christ was a, a very poor individual. His, his apostles were very poor. Um, they, they, there was not a, a vast accumulation of wealth that went along with them and their teaching. And so the the question would be, is there inherently a problem with wealth? You know, obviously Jesus, uh, the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler, you know, uh, Jesus, yeah. a lot of people will take that story and say, well, you, you can see there that, that wealth is the problem. Uh, for a Christian, is wealth inherently a problem or, or is there something else? Is, is that a misinterpretation? I think wealth can be a problem. And here's the way that I will respond to that, which I remember that question very well. And I think it's a good question. I think we can become obsessed with wealth, especially when we already have a lot of it. You know, I mean, I live in a middle-class neighborhood, so sometimes I don't feel very rich. But in real terms, in historical terms, I'm absolutely profoundly rich. 
Um, and with that wealth comes a lot of extra time on my hands that, for example, my ancestors didn't have because my female ancestors were washing clothes you know, by a riverbed every day. Hmm. And I have a lot of time on my hands because I can throw my clothes in a washing machine. So wealth isn't just about the stuff. It's about the time. And I think with that time, we can become obsessed with the wrong thing, you know, getting the next phone, getting the nicer car, kind of um, competing with the stuff that my neighbors have. Uh, So materialism is a real worry. It should be a real worry among uh, Christians. But the solution is is always Christ. And I think you're wise to bring up... um, the rich young ruler, because that's usually uh, kind of one of the responses or Christian critiques to capitalism and to the kind of massive wealth that we've accumulated over the past couple hundred years, which is that, you know, wealth isn't going to solve all our problems. And as Christians, I think that's right. We need to remember that. And so if we put wealth as our first, uh, as our idol, you know, as kind of our, our first principle, as something that we seek every day when we wake up, then it is going to be very bad for us. It's going to lead to um, being covetous and envious and all these types of things. And so I don't think wealth is inherently bad if it is earned lawfully by serving other people. And that's the power of economics. Economics helps us understand that when people engage in voluntary market trade, they're both better off. So the fact that I get to go to the grocery store and just kind of peruse the aisles and pick up generally what I need. I can't have everything in the grocery store, but I can have a lot. Um, This frees me up in profound ways and really makes me rich. And so that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Uh, But again, it's it's our perspective on wealth and where we place (laughs) those desires around wealth. I think that's what gets us into trouble often. It it occurs to me as you're you're saying that, that this uh, makes the Christian duty of, of charity all that much more important for almost especially for the wealthy uh, to to realize that your income is a gift from God and it's not simply something that you uh, place at the center of your life, but it's a tool that that you've been given to do things with. And charity should be a big part of that. Absolutely. And I think it's important to remember that there's two sides to this. So when you think about somebody who has a lot of money, a lot of wealth, a lot of income, then they have a lot of leftover. So they can, they, you know, we would say as believers, as Christians, they have a huge responsibility with that extra, with their reserves, uh, that they can be doing a lot for a lot of people, and they need to be really Christ-centered about how they're supposed to help. I mean, because that, that opens up a whole other set of questions that are really important. Who should I give my money to? What charities? You know, how much should I be um, investing in those things? Those are big and very personal questions, I think. But but it's also the idea that if people who work in businesses, whether you run a business or whether you're an employee in a business, you are, when you make your income and you're doing that in a market-based society, you're getting the money because you're giving up your time, talents, and energies to serve others. And I don't think that we talk about that enough. So, for example, if you're an accountant, you know, right now it's it's that time of year when we think about accounting and taxes. Oh, you're thinking uh, about that, really? Yeah. You know, I don't <laughs> like to, but I have to. We all do, right? So the fact that there are people who are specializing in accounting services helps me. It serves me because I don't really know how to do that very well on my own. And so even the, the income that you earned, again, in a market-based society, it's a signal or a sign that you've served somebody else with your gifts. 
So it's both the income you get is a good sign, but what you do with your leftover income can also be a good sign if you're making these investments in your church and in your community uh, and in charities that can really help people. And I think we have a, a very profound obligation to do that. One critique that I'd, I'd really like you to address, and you touched on it in, in your lecture here at uh, the Acton Institute, there, there's often a critique of, of capitalism in general or the market economy uh, where uh, you will see people uh, marching in the streets carrying signs that say capitalism kills. There's the, the, the accusation that capitalism uh, actually causes poverty or pulls wealth away from those in need and get, puts it in the pockets of the rich. Is that a an accurate uh, estimation of the of the impact of cal- of capitalism or a market economy in the world over the last uh, say a couple hundreds of hundreds of years, or is that is that a mischaracterization? I think it is a profound mischaracterization, and I I really like this question that you're asking because I I do not like the word capitalism, and I really also don't like the word socialism. And the reason I don't like them is because they mean different things to different people. And they have a lot of baggage associated with them. So a lot of people who don't like capitalism, this is what they have in their mind. They think of kind of a smoky, wood-paneled room with rich people making deals and smoking cigars or something. You know, Mm -hmm. kind of Wall Street tycoons do up to bad things. Um, Capitalism, you know, is, is a system of profit and loss. That's really all it is. So I think, again, we have to kind of use our economic way of thinking to understand what it means. Capitalism means private individuals own resources and they make production decisions around them. Socialism means the state owns those resources and they make the production decisions around them. So we tend to have these very different kind of feelings or ideas about those two words that aren't always accurate. So when I think about capitalism, meaning private individuals getting to decide what businesses they're going to open, what investments they're going to pursue, what entrepreneurial ideas they think are important. This is the key to escaping poverty. And if you look at the data, there's just absolutely no question that if you want to liberate the poor from material poverty, capitalism is the way to do it. I mean, there's just absolutely no question about this. Now, socialism, we can't say the same things about Socialism, you know, and communism have really led to a lot of poverty, and I would encourage people to think about what's going on in Venezuela today. Um, you know, we we would think we would have learned we meaning global the global we we would have learned from history, and and we haven't. And in Venezuela, the government is taking control over more and more economic resources, and it is spinning people into poverty. So today, people are using their government-issued ration ticket, showing up at a grocery store on a certain day, a day they're told to go, and there's no bread and there's no meat, and they scrounge around for what they can get, and then they're forced into a black market for groceries. This impoverishes people. So that's really the reality of government-owning economic resources. So I think we want to be clear about the terms, but I think it, you know, to your question, it is a profound misunderstanding of really what capitalism is, that's the first thing, and A, and B, what it does, which is it really alleviates poverty um, in very real ways. You talk about failing to learn from history. Right now, I've, I've, been, uh, I've actually picked up a book by Frank Decauter on, uh, it's called Mao's Great Famine, talking about the Great Leap Forward in China in the 1950s and, and 60s, and what, what a horrible impact that had on the population of China, the lines uh, for fewer and fewer goods, the poverty, the starvation that that resulted from that centrally planned 
economy. And, and your, Venezuela is just it's it's history repeating itself. It really is, and it's it's a what is so troubling to me about it is it's entirely unnecessary. Yeah, it's not necessary. I mean, it's avoidable. It's very possible for <clears throat> Venezuela right now to be a place that's thriving. Lots of ideas, lots of energy, lots of entrepreneurship, and it's not. And it's because the government is taking over institutions that really God ordained be run by decentralized and private individuals. And so um, we need to get our facts straight about this, and we need to be very careful what we agitate for. Because yes. when we agitate for the government to grow, uh, there's really big consequences to that. Often, often major bad unintended consequences. I have to. I have to uh, I say, I was. I was looking through uh, the the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics website, checking out your page there, and uh, the book that you were uh, participating in uh, editing and, and writing a couple of years back. I think it came out in 2015. It's called "For the Least of These: A Biblical Answer to Poverty." I, I was. I was like, oh, that sounds. You know, that sounds like it's right up Acton's alley. And then I looked at the contributors, and realized the book actually could have been published by the Acton Institute. There's Dr. Arthur Brooks who speaks here. There's Glenn Sunshine who's been a research fellow here. Uh, there's this guy named Father Robert Sirico who was involved in it. Lord Brian Griffiths, uh, Marvin Alasky, Peter Greer, endorsed by Michael Novak. Uh, just a fantastic lineup of Acton speakers and and uh, and people there. Uh, so you know, if you ever want to publish a book like that again and want to avoid the hassle of publishing, we could probably just take that over for you. Well, that sounds perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like we have a lot in common, which I yes. know we do. Yeah, and I, I have to ask too. I, I believe you were at Acton University last year as an instructor, were you not? I was not, but I will be there this You're year. You're going to be there this year. I'm okay, very okay, about that. okay. Yes. Yep. So Acton University, I want to get the plug in. June That's 20th right. through 23rd this year in downtown Grand Rapids. It's a great event, and uh, you can check it out online at university. .actin.org. Uh, one final question, uh, Ann, and I have to I have to ask this because it just w when I was reading your bio, this really piqued my interest. You have have done academic research on uh, the political economy of Al Qaeda post 9/11, and you actually did some uh, a analysis for the Central Intelligence Agency. First of all, how how did you come to be interested in that particular topic? Well, yeah, I'm, if you look at my bio, I'm kind of all over the place, but that's the joy of being an economist. Is Indeed. That economics applies to everything. Yeah, so you just get to pick what you're interested in and then think about it, which is fun. So when I was in, I went to, to George Mason University to do my uh, graduate work, and I started in 2000. As we know, 9-11 um, happened uh, the next year. I was at the beginning of my second year of grad school. And I was in Fairfax, Virginia. So we were very close to all that was happening. Yes. And at the time, I had a professor, Charles Rowley, who um, I was uh, doing research with. And he was so moved by the events of 9-11 and said, you know, we have to write about this because there's going to be a lot of policy that comes out around this. It's probably not going to be very well thought out. So economists need to weigh in. So we wrote a paper together. And that really spawned a whole, um, you know, research program for me. So my dissertation is on the political economy of Al-Qaeda. I, I look at Al-Qaeda from an economic point of view to try to understand um, how they were able to organize, how they ran their organization. And then ultimately, my goal was to figure out if we understood those things, maybe we could stop them. And then after I left uh, George Mason, I went straight to the CIA because I, of, of my research. So I had spent some time there. So that's really how I became interested in it and spent quite a bit of time thinking about that. That's very interesting, it, just how economics applies everywhere. And it's, it's especially, it must have been interesting looking at an organization like Al-Qaeda that's so 
decentralized um, and so spread out and to apply an economic or political political economy analysis to that must have been fascinating. It was really fascinating. You know, it was really hard because those were the early days and really all we had was the 9-11 commission report had been uh, declassified. So I, I really used that a lot in my research. But, you know, all I was doing in some ways, it was very simple. I was saying, OK, um, as economists, we believe that there's scarcity in the world that applies to terrorists. Um, and that terrorists want to maximize um, their ends and minimize their costs. And so I applied that thinking to al-Qaeda and said there's a supply curve for al-Qaeda and there's a demand curve for al-Qaeda. And if we really want to stop al-Qaeda, it's not just about limiting the supply, which is, in, you know, kind of after 9-11, we did all this security at airports and all these sure. types of things. And those were defensive mechanisms that were important. But what I really wanted to think about was what is this demand for al-Qaeda, both people who donate to it but people who are actively participating in it? If you want to stop terrorism, you, people need to wake up in the morning and say, mm, I'm not going to be a terrorist. I'm going to do something else. Mm -hmm. And so that's a much bigger question about the institutions and their society, their government, their religious point of view. And so I was looking at some of these bigger issues to try to understand why do people make a, what seems like a rational choice, a non-coerced choice to join a terrorist group when they could maybe get their goals accomplished some other way? So it was really fascinating. I don't have all the answers, but um, it was a great I, – I think it was a really important thing to think about. Um, sure, and, sure. And we probably still need to be doing that. Oh, yeah. Going away. It, it seems to be – it seems to have some staying power, unfortunately. Well, and before we uh, before we go, I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, and what what is it that you uh, that you folks do there? So we are kind of an educational organization, and really the idea um, when we started about five years ago was to kind of combine theology with economics. And uh, I know it's very similar to what you guys are working on at the Acton Institute, which is why I think we uh, make great partnerships. Yeah, kind of, kind of sister uh, organizations. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so we try to, um, you know, there's a lot of think tanks in Washington, D.C., and we try not to be too think tanky, if you will. What sure. I mean by that is we don't get really um, involved too much in specific policies, but what we try to do is say, hey, you know, Scripture provides us with the narrative that's important for navigating the world, and economics uh, provides us with a really powerful tool set for being good stewards. And when we combine those things, then people can use that framework to decide on their own how to think about policy issues. So we really want to equip people with this way of thinking and then allow them to do it on their own. So in that, we do a lot of papers, books. We've just done some homeschool curriculum. So it's been a it's been a really exciting journey, to be on, especially at being part of a startup. Um, and we're still, I would say, in the realm of organizations, we're still a new organization, but it's been a lot of fun. Sure. Uh, and you can find the Institute online at uh, tifwe.org, uh, the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. I've been talking with Dr. Ann Rathbone-Bradley, Vice President of Economic Initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. And it's been fantastic to talk to you. Very interesting conversation. And uh, we wish you well in your work in the Institute. And hopefully we'll, we'll run across, uh, we'll cross paths at Acton University this summer. Mark, that sounds great. Thanks so much for having me. And with that, another edition of Radio Free Acton draws to a close. Thanks 
Once again to Dr. Ann Rathlin Bradley for joining me here on the podcast on a snow day, no less. Uh, kids are at home from school. She's out on the East Coast. They're uh, having a little bit of a blizzard out there. And so we hope, uh, first of all, that everybody stays safe in the blizzard. We hope that uh, they can shovel out of the blizzard and get the kids back to school tomorrow. But thanks to Dr. Ann Rathlin Bradley for taking some time away from watching your kids to join us today on Radio Free Acton. Thanks as well to you for joining us uh, and listening to the podcast. We hope you've subscribed. If you haven't, you can subscribe on iTunes. Just look for the subscribe link on the post with this podcast. And of course, if you know of anyone who uh, you think would be interested in the work of the Acton Institute, uh, spread those links around. Uh, We believe that a free and virtuous society is vital. We believe that it's worth sharing and worth defending. And that's what we do here on a daily basis at the Acton Institute. That's all for today, folks. Thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Acton. We'll talk to you again on future editions. Have a good day, everyone.